I'm just kind of curious, how many of you have ever found yourself in a situation in which you became an easy target? And uh, what I mean by that is uh, I remember uh, when I was in the eighth grade, I went over and uh, had like a sleepover with a group of friends. Uh, It was a bunch of smelly eighth grade boys. And uh, I easily became a target uh, simply by being the first one to fall asleep. And I remember like I fell asleep and I woke up the next morning and to this like really like wretched smell and this like funny feeling in my ear and realized that they had uh, filled my ear with mustard while I was asleep. That's an awful feeling, by the way. It takes forever to clean it out. They had uh, taken Icy Hot and uh, dunked my underwear in it and then they thrown my shoes out in the street. They're, they were great friends, right? And I just became an easy target because I fell asleep first. And uh, if you're just now joining us, we've been walking our way through this uh, letter in the New Testament uh, called First Peter. And it's a letter in which a guy by the name of Peter writes to a group of Christians that had become easy targets uh, within the Roman Empire, meaning that uh, they were slandered, they were falsely accused, they had all kinds of lies spread about them. If they were walking down the hallway, the Roman Empire slapping a kick me sign on their backs. And if you're ever in a position where you become an easy target like that, our natural response as human beings is to guard ourselves, get a little bit defensive, maybe lash back out, maybe lawyer up, uh, live our lives in maybe kind of this paranoid state of bitterness. And this is why Peter writes the letter, is he writes to them and he says, hey, I I understand that you're in this situation in which the Roman Empire is coming down on you, but I don't want you to live your lives in a defensive way. And he helps uh, us to frame the way that we see the world. In chapter one, he um, addresses them as, foreigners, or the Greek word is exile. Same word that is used of Daniel and his friends when we studied uh, that book just uh, a few weeks ago. And so uh, what Peter is doing is he's saying, hey, hey, listen, I don't want you to be defensive. I want you to make a difference in this world, which is kind of ironic that Peter would be the guy that would write this letter. And I love that about him. Like if you know anything at all about Peter's story, uh, subtle was not his middle name. Peter was, Peter was the guy that was like, you know, Jesus is walking on the water. He's the first one to jump out of the boat and walk on water towards Jesus. The night before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, the Roman soldiers come to arrest Jesus. And what does Peter do? He draws a sword and cuts off a soldier's ear. And Jesus doesn't like turn and chest bump him and say, all right, you know, way to go. Jesus reaches down, grabs the ear of this Roman soldier. It's a guy by the name of Malchus. There's a reason why, for some reason, the authors of Scripture wanted us to know his name. And Jesus slaps it back on his head like a Lego block. And then he turns to Peter and he's like, don't do that, man. Now this, when Peter writes 1 Peter, this is him not being hypocritical. This is him speaking from experience. And Peter's saying, hey, listen, like I've done that before. Like I understand what it feels like to be defensive. And here's what he's trying to do. If I could summarize the letter of 1 Peter, I would simply say, Peter wants us to exchange making a statement for making a difference. He wants us to make a difference in this world in which we live. And so he's walking us through some rather difficult material. Last week, if you were here, some really tricky passages that we had to walk through where Peter is talking about submission. And I'm so thankful that today I've got a much easier task. And if you read ahead, you know that's a joke. Right? Because uh, today in this passage, we're going to walk through a bunch of verses together and he's actually going to talk about how we are to conduct ourselves in the face of, of suffering. 
And so what Peter's trying to do is he's just trying to say, hey, I want you to live your life in such a way that you would recognize this as maybe one of the greatest opportunities to be alive in the history of the world. That there is a lot of suffering, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of injustice. But as Christ followers, the way that we live our lives should be distinct and different to where people sit up and take notice. And right now, uh, Christians in general don't have the greatest reputation within the world. And honestly, like for much of the time, we just have our own selves to blame. Because maybe we blend in, maybe we stand out in the worst ways. And what Peter is saying is, I want you to live your life in such a poised, wise, gracious way that in the face of all the suffering in the world, the rest of the world would look at you and go, man, what is your secret? Like, where do you find that strength? How do you do that? Um, uh, we just got back late last night uh, from fall break. I, I took our, we went to Branson, Missouri. It's where we go every year for fall break. And uh, uh, one of my just like greatest joys is just to like to take my family out like for a nice meal. And so we went out one evening uh, to this Italian restaurant and just had a great experience. Like the food was amazing. The atmosphere was awesome. We had like a view of the water and our waitress uh, was just great. Like she was friendly. Uh, she was funny. You know, she was recommending like, you know, what we should order. And, uh, and then as the night kind of went on, she's kind of telling us a little bit more about her life and where she's from and how she just got back from a trip with her sister to New York. And so we're just uh, really uh, getting along well with her. And right at the end, as I'm paying the bill, she hands my credit card back to me and she goes, so what do you do for a living? And you just know, like, and I've shared this with you before if you've been around here for a while. <clears throat> That's always a loaded question for me. Not because I'm ashamed of it, not because I'm afraid of it, but I just never know how people are going to respond to it. And so I, I just looked right at her and I go, well, I'm a pastor. And she did this double take. She was like, you're a pastor? And I was like, yeah. And she goes, I never would have thought. <laughs> and I didn't know how to take that, right? Like I was like... And so I just looked at her and I was like, I guess I'll take that as a compliment, you know? And she kind of laughed and walked away. And I looked at my wife, I was like, I don't really know what that means, all right? But, but what if, like, what if people were like, uh, maybe right now, like somebody's like maybe perspective of what they have of a Christian is maybe what they see on TV or social media, or maybe what they grew up with in a really legalistic environment. And what if they were to look at you and go, man, you were not what I was expecting in the best way. And so this is what Peter's gonna drive at in these verses. And if you're taking notes, and I would actually encourage you, like you don't need to like take notes like you're studying for a test. I would just encourage you to write down a few things because here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna walk through some passages. I'm gonna read and explain, read and explain. And then uh, I'm just gonna point out eight qualities or characteristics that Peter, uh, that we just find right in the text that Peter says, this is who exiles should be. This is how we make a difference in the world. All right, so I wanna pick it up in chapter three, verse 13, uh, Peter writes, for the scriptures say, and what he's doing is he's quoting from the Old Testament book of Psalm 34. And this is why this is in quotes. If you want to enjoy life and see many happy days. Now, I just got to say, who doesn't want that? Isn't this what every person selling a book or promoting a podcast claims to know? Hey, man, if you want to have a, a, a great life and happy days, then, you know, like, like what is it, Peter? Is it, is it some additional self-care? Is it going vegan? Is it adopting a rescue pet? Is it, you know, uh, taking care of our finances in such a way that we can retire early? And Peter's like, hey, not bad things in and of themselves, but here's how you do it. Verse 10, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work 
to maintain it. That, he says, is the secret to having a happy life and enjoying your days. So here's characteristic number one of how exiles stand out and make a difference in the world. Exiles search for peace and work to maintain it. What I want you to see from these verses is this is all rooted in relationships. Search for peace in your relationships. Work to maintain it. Now, um, don't you think that it's true that when your life seems to be going pretty well, uh, chances are that it's a direct correlation of your relationships. Like our relationships matter so much. Now there might be some external circumstances, maybe financial, health, all that kind of a thing. But for the most part, when life is rough, it's because maybe we've got a relationship that isn't going so well. And when life is going pretty good, it's our relationships are in sync. And Peter says here, the gravitational pull of our relationships is not towards peace. It's towards division and misunderstanding and conflict. And so uh, this is all kind of really connected to our, our words. Like when my relationship with my spouse or my friends or my coworkers, when it begins to, to go south, it's usually because of something that I say to them, something they say to me, maybe the tone of our speech, maybe something that should be said but goes unsaid. Now, now here's the thing. It's, it's relatively easy to say the right things and be in harmony with one another just as long as we're not under pressure. Now, here's what was challenging for these Christians in the first century is that they were living under intense scrutiny and pressure from the Roman Empire. And when you are stressed out, would you not agree? When you're stressed out, that's when things that you regret saying come out the most. It's, it's honestly like... like um, um, Character doesn't get revealed in the easy moments of your life. Character gets revealed in the difficult ones. Uh, my, uh, my 10-year-old daughter and I, we've been uh, lately watching a bunch of reruns of this uh, show on Hulu called MasterChef. And I don't know if any of you have ever seen it, but uh, it makes us hungry every night. I don't know why, you know, we, we do this. But we, we were watching the show MasterChef. They have MasterChef Junior Edition. And if you've never seen the show, uh, Gordon Ramsay is this like, you know, really loud kind of boisterous uh, chef. And he has all these people come in and they're making all these dishes, all this food. And uh, it's relatively like, like when they're not stressed, like they're getting along with each other. They're taking their time making these amazing dishes. But here's this, the brilliance of the show is that he puts a time limit on the meal. And then in some challenges, he has them work together as a team. And that's when you see their character. And that's when they start saying harsh things to each other, divisive things to each other. And this is what Peter is saying is he's saying, man, in this world, peace does not mean the absence of conflict. Peace means being able to respond in a way that doesn't breed more of it. And this is just what, one of those things we all just need to file away because the next crisis is coming. The next presidential election is coming. The, the next thing that could potentially divide all of us is coming. And as Christ followers, that's our most important moment to stay poised and watch what comes out of us in those, in those times. Peter goes on in verse 13 and he says, Now who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, this is what you do. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. So characteristic number two, exiles worship as a response to worry. 
See, these verses uh, right here that Peter writes are a reference uh, from Isaiah chapter 8, where God is saying these words to the prophet because he's about to deliver a hard message to a hardened culture. And in the face of suffering and threats, Peter says, like our response as Christ followers is to take all of that worry, concern, and anxiety and channel it into worship. It's the reason why we do this every seven days. It's the reason why we gather every seven days. And I don't know about you, but over the last six days, I've picked up some additional baggage in my life and on my heart that I need to clean out and offload when I come in here to worship. See, see, worship is not um, this idea that, you know, we've just kind of got it all together and so we come in here as clappy, happy people. Worship is a cry for help. It's a response to all that God has done in our past and all that he promises he will do. So we don't worship because we've got it all figured out. We worship precisely because we don't. By the way, you don't worship, uh, you know, when you feel like it. Honestly, most of the time when I come in here, at least initially, I'm just being honest, and when the first song uh, starts up, I don't necessarily feel like doing it, but I, I don't wait till I feel like it. I worship so that I feel like it. Gr- forgetfulness is the greatest enemy of faith. I'm talking to Christians here. It's when you forget what God did that you stop believing what God will do. And if you aren't moved to worship, all that means is you've just simply forgotten who you are and, and you forgot who you would be without him and what he did for you. So when I worship, What I'm doing is like when I throw my hands in the air and I'm singing, I'm simply saying, God, I refuse to forget who you are and what you've done. And at some point, at some point, every single one of us came into the presence of God as messy, jacked up sinners. And now we've been forgiven in Christ. We've got a hope and a future and our eternity is secure. That's why we sing. That's why we like lift up our voices. That's why we say, God, like we need you. This posture right here is not look at me. This posture right here is, God, I need you. Like a dependent stance. God, there there isn't anything else I can lean my life up against. And the prophet Habakkuk writes these words in chapter three, verse 19. He says, the sovereign Lord is my, what is he? Strength. And he makes my feet like the feet of a deer and he enables me to tread on the heights. And that, that verse always confused me because I was like, I've never once prayed for to have the feet of a deer. Like never once. But it's like those, those nature shows, whenever you watch those mountain goats that are like on these like treacherous heights and they look so stable. And this is what Habakkuk is getting at. Most of the time when I pray, I ask God, God, would you please flatten the ground under my feet? And God says, I'd rather strengthen your feet. I'd rather strengthen your feet for the terrain ahead. When you cannot work or worry your way out of a difficult season, you worship your way through it. And that leads right to what Peter says next in verse 15. He goes, and if somebody asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready, always be ready to what? Explain it. But, this is a big but right here, do this in a gentle and respectful way. Many of us forgot about that over the last couple of years. Keep your conscience clear. Here's characteristic number three. Exiles are always ready to share their story. And these Christians that Peter had been writing to, they'd been living their lives so counterculturally and so backwards from the way that everybody else was in the Roman Empire that they stood out like bright pink neon signs. And somebody was bound to ask the question, like, what is with you guys? 
Like, what's your secret? Like, how can you be so hopeful? Don't you realize the whole Roman Empire hates you? What, what, what do you have that we don't? And Peter says, in that moment, when you've been living your life in such a way that provokes a, a question, be ready. Don't miss that opportunity. Be ready to explain it. Now, somewhere along the line, there's a word for like sharing our faith or sharing what Christ has done. It's called evangelism. And uh, chances are, it's probably not your favorite word. And uh, th this has gotten twisted to just mean like it's sort of like some sort of a presentation that we make or some sort of a pamphlet or some sort of an argument in which we argue somebody in, into the faith. And we never want to see Jesus doing any of those things. Here, Peter says, no, man, just live your life in such a distinct way that somebody asks you a question about it. And in the moment, you don't miss the opportunity and you're ready to explain it. Statistically right now, most of us aren't doing this. About half of Christians, this is just the, what the statistics say, half of Christians say that it's important to share their faith. 78% said they haven't done it in the past year. And all the reasons that are listed are what you might imagine. It's like, well, you know, I don't feel like I know enough or I'm kind of uncomfortable to do that. And, you know, what if they think less of me or it could cost me something. And, or my favorite one, Aaron, I'll invite them to church and let you do it. You know, it's like, that's kind of my favorite one. 47% of millennials actually feel it's morally wrong to sh and these are more of, of Christians say that it's morally wrong to share your beliefs with somebody from a different faith. Now, all I wanna do is just simply point this out. You are already an evangelist for something in your life. Like you're already doing it, like very naturally. And we're actually really, really good at it. And usually what, what, we don't think about it this way, but we're constantly sharing those things that have made a deep impact on us or that have moved us in some way. It seems like not a week goes by, somebody doesn't try to evangelize me towards some show on Netflix. It's like, oh man, you just gotta see this show. Like, it's so great. You know, people will talk, they'll try to evangelize me towards, you know, what their favorite restaurant. And I'm not offended by that. I don't mind. They don't seem uncomfortable. It's because it's something they're passionate about. It's something that's moved them. And I'm simply saying this, that that should be what our faith is to us. That it's something so natural that really our posture is, is simply, uh, hey man, I, I just want you to come and see a man. I want you to come and see who Jesus Christ is. Let me share my story with you and what he has done. And you're living your life in such a distinct way that people sit up and take notice and they're curious about it. I remember reading a book a few years ago um, about a, a famous uh, atheist. He was really well known. He's since passed away. Maybe some of you recognize his name. His name was Christopher Hitchens. And the guy was brilliant. I read several of his books. He really made me think. And during the last few years of his life, he toured around university campuses with a Christian scholar by the name of Larry Taunton. And Larry wrote a book after Christopher Hitchens' death in which he described uh, just their relationship. And they got to know each other pretty well because they were traveling around to different university campuses. And he described how there wasn't any of his intellectual <clears throat> rebuttals that really seemed to make much of a difference in uh, Christopher's viewpoint on life or the way that he was living. But he did say that the one thing that caused Christopher Hitchens to begin to ask Larry some questions was Larry and his wife were in the process of adopting a little girl from Russia who had special needs and a lot of problems. And he said, that was what caused Hitchens to lean in. And he asked me all kinds of questions about why we would do this and what is our motivation. And he said, um, uh, that thing that we did made more of a difference in, in Christopher Hitchens' life than any intellectual argument that I ever made. See, sharing your faith 
does not, and I don't mean to demean any of this because maybe some of you came to know Christ through one of these pathways, but sharing your faith does not mean mastering a presentation, right? It's not the bridge. It's not the four spiritual laws. It's not the evangel cube or testaments, all right? It comes, well, that went over everybody's head. All right, so, so it comes from living, some of you have the testaments in your pocket right now. You're like, oh, just tuck those away. All right, so it comes from living your life in such a way that it provokes a question. Notice what Peter said. He goes, be ready to give, some translations say, be ready to give a defense, not be defensive. And do this with gentleness and respect. Very few, if anybody uh, ever gets converted because we said mean, cutting things to them on Facebook. Very few times when you see a back and forth on social media, nobody ever goes, well, you make a very valid point. I think I've changed my mind. No, we just like, we just get entrenched into our viewpoint. Peter says, be ready to explain it and do this with gentleness and respect. Uh, Now, characteristic number four, exiles are all in. Look at verse 18. He writes, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. And that is a great sentence that really just crystallizes what the gospel message is. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. So when he went and preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago, and when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat, only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. Now, um, I want to take just a quick second, and I want to kind of double click on verses 19 and 20 there. He says, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. These verses... Uh, bring up a lot of questions. In fact, um, most commentators will say that verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20 are some of the most uh, confusing, if not the most confusing verses in the entire New Testament. The great theologian Martin Luther actually had this to say about it. I'm just going to quote him. He said, uh, referring to the verses we just read, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. So much so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. Now I gotta tell you, being a preacher, knowing that I gotta cover these verses, that wasn't very comforting to me. You know, it's like, it's like if Martin Luther didn't know what it meant, who in the, how am I gonna know what it means? So this really kind of brings up the question, like what did Peter mean when he said that Jesus preached to the spirits in prison? Well, I just kind of did a lot of study on it this week, and I kind of narrowed it down to one of two possibilities. And I just want to take just a quick theological diversion because, like, you know, for those of you spiritual nerds right now, like, you know, those, you're my people, all right? So let me just kind of just offer one of two explanations. It either means that after Jesus' death, Christ went and proclaimed his victory to a group of disobedient demons, the principalities and powers, who had been at work during the days of Noah. They are bound up awaiting judgment and Christ went and proclaimed to them his ultimate victory, a foretaste of what will happen at the final judgment. That's one explanation. Here's the second. This is the one that I would lean towards. The other option is that Peter is saying that Christ through his spirit was preaching a message through Noah's obedience. That Noah was running against the grain of the culture in which he lived. And now Christ has called us to run against the grain of the culture that we now live. And he's speaking through us. 
We are the mouthpiece. We've got God's word and now his spirit living in us. God wants to speak through us and our lives as well. Noah preached to his generation for 120 years and very few people, if anybody, listened. Now, Peter is saying, don't be discouraged if we sometimes get the same reaction. You stay faithful to God. God will keep his word through us as well. And then in verse 21, hey, I think I just explained what Martin Luther didn't understand. All right, that's... I'll put that on my resume. All right, so verse, verse 21. I'm joking, by the way. Please don't send me an email. All right, so <laughs> verse 21. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God. That's what baptism is. is it's a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what Peter's doing here is he's taking us back to that Old Testament narrative of Noah and the ark. And he says here that, that Noah, there's, there's eight people that ran against the grain of culture. Everybody thought they were crazy for building this big boat out in a field. And he said, but, but God saved them through water. And now this water uh, is symbolized in baptism. So here's what baptism is, all right? For those of you that maybe have had questions about it, maybe those of you that have not yet been baptized, I simply just want to explain to you that baptism, it, the water going over you by immersion is not what saves you. Literally, the response of faith expressed through it is what does. That I don't know why God asks us to do this necessarily, but he asks us to do this is an act of obedience that you give your life to Jesus and then you are immersed into water as a symbol of what Jesus has done for you. You are identifying with his suffering and his death. There's a lot of people that get real nervous about being baptized, and I think that's as God wanted it. It's kind of an intimidating thing to do, to stand in front of a group of people and to be dunked underwater. Nobody looks good when you come up out of the water. You got snot running out of your nose. You got your, you know, makeup running, all that, you know, hair's in a funky position. And I think that's part of the experience is that God says, I want you to die to yourself. You're identifying with Christ. This isn't something that you do to save yourself. It is something in which you are saying, man, I'm all in. Now, for those of you that, I know that many people like maybe grew up Catholic or maybe you grew up in certain denominations that didn't dunk underwater. Maybe you were sprinkled as an infant and there's nothing wrong with that. I would just simply urge you to be in water immersed um, uh, for a couple of reasons. I believe this is what's taught in the New Testament. I believe this is what God has commanded. And I want you to have the memory of it. And you're not actually forsaking your mom and dad or your grandma or whoever had you sprinkled. You're just building on the foundation that they gave to you. See, Peter, I love that he did this last week in the passage when he's talking about submission. He says, you submit as unto the Lord. This week, when it comes to subjecting ourselves to suffering and ridicule, he says, you just keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. The main point of these potentially confusing verses is Jesus prevails. Amen. Jesus prevails. So what I want to do is I want to encourage our church to stay on message. That Jesus prevails. That's our announcement. That's what the gospel message is. That's our message. That's our mission. That is the one agenda that is guaranteed to prevail. So listen, I don't know where the world is going. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's around the corner, but I do know that Jesus prevails. So uh, let's say this. Um, uh, so yeah, sure. Like, uh, you know, let's talk about politics. But by the way, we will only talk about politics if the Bible addresses it. And I'll only tell you what the Bible says through the lens of that. I will never, ever use this platform to give you my political opinion. Like, not ever. 
Uh, both Democrats and Republicans need Jesus. And our ultimate salvation that we are looking for did not, does not come riding in on the wings of Air Force One, but cradled in a manger. And whether you kind of have a little bit of a leaning towards a donkey or an elephant, that is not nearly as important as your allegiance to the lamb. And yes, let's... Let's go ahead and talk about the economy. But just remember, our main message is both the rich and the poor need Jesus. And yes, let's talk about cultural diversity. Our main message is what the Bible declares, that people of every culture, tribe and tongue need Jesus. And Jesus came to make us one equal family of brothers and sisters, and heaven will be made up of the nations. And yes, Let's talk about pandemics. Hopefully we don't have one for a really, really long time, but let's talk about that. And let's make it really clear whether you wanna wear a mask or not or get a vaccine or not, we're all gonna die and we all need Jesus. All right, so um, these next few qualities, I'm gonna move much faster, all right? Uh, uh, quality number five, exiles are ready to endure. Look at verse 22. Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God and all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. And I wanna jump into chapter four, verse one. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. I don't know about you, that... that runs against all of my instincts. For you have suffered physic, for if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your life, lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. This runs against and counter to so like many sermons I hear and oftentimes even my own like prayer requests to God because my prayers are usually like God, get me out of this thing that causes me suffering. And I'm not saying we shouldn't pray that, but here Peter says, hey, hey, what if God has something to teach you through it? And I know that's not a very popular message. I know that's not something that we aspire to, but it is something that's very, very real. That Jesus himself subjected himself to physical pain for a purpose. And if Jesus was willing to go through physical pain, God may allow us to go through physical pain at least for a while. What I want us to do is, is, to, is to simply change our prayers to say, God, maybe first, hey, God, is there any way out of this? But if not, would you give me the strength to endure it? And would you help me to see what it is you're trying to develop within me? Um, here over the last year, I don't know if it's like a midlife crisis. It probably is, probably a midlife crisis. I've started like uh, 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 strapping a 30 pound backpack on my back and just hiking and running for miles. Right, and uh, uh, I'll, I'll do these events uh, where we'll go out. I did one just two weeks ago where we strapped on a 30 pound pack and we hiked 26.2 miles. And uh, back in the uh, spring, I did another one where we put on a backpack and we also additionally put on a 60 pound sandbag. So about 90 pounds are on my back and I did 20 miles. And the most common reaction that I get on social media when I tell people about it is this, why? And I gotta be honest, like halfway through these events, they always seem like a good idea. And then I get about halfway through the event. I'm like, why? Like, why am I doing this? This is crazy. But here's why I've chosen to do this is that I just wanna get used to doing hard things. I just wanna develop the mentality of saying, you know what, I'm not gonna run from pain. I'm gonna dive into it. And honestly, since I've been doing these things, there's very few, like when I have to have a difficult conversation or a challenging meeting or make a tough decision, I always just go, well, it could be worse. I could have a sandbag on my back. 
And this is what like Peter's driving at. He's, he's like saying, hey, let's not just run from all suffering. God wants to use this to form and shape your character. Quality number six, exiles are earnest in prayer, quick to love and are cheerfully generous. Uh, look at verse seven. The end of the world is coming soon. Uh, keep in mind, he wrote this 2000 years ago. So the end of the world could happen this afternoon, could happen another 2000 years. It's not really up to us to kind of speculate. He just says, man, be ready. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other for love covers a multitude of sins. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. Uh, I, I just simply wanna point out right, right here that these are uh, marks of what I desire for our church to be. The um, little preview here, two weeks from today, we're gonna, uh, next weekend, um, we're gonna finish up First Peter. And two weeks from today, we're gonna start a brand new series for four weeks called We Are Traders Point. And here's what we're gonna do in that series. We're just gonna talk about uh, where we came from and uh, what God has called us to and this kind of new day that is in front of us and what is our mission and, and what are we trying to accomplish and how can we play a role in it? And so we're gonna be talking about that and these marks right here of being uh, earnest in prayer, quick to love, cheerfully generous are a part of that. Uh, two more characteristics. Here's characteristic number seven. Exiles use their gifts for the good of others and the glory of God. Uh, look at verse 10. It says, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. By the way, he's saying that of you. If you're a follower of Jesus, God has given you a gift he spiritually equipped you for. And then he says, use them well to promote yourselves. No, he doesn't say that. He says, use them well to serve one another. That's, that's why you use your gift. You, you, serve, you bless other people. And he goes, do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Wow, that's a lofty statement. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. Application of this is real simple. Find out what your gift is because he promises he gave you one and then use it. Use it, don't put it to promote yourself. Use it to serve others and to glorify God. And I just wanna say, like right now, there's, uh, I don't know who I'm speaking to. Uh, somebody right now is kind of sitting on the sidelines and you need to put on the jersey, you need to get on the field and you need to use the gift that God has given you. And maybe there's a reason why you've gotten on the sidelines. Maybe you're hurt. Maybe you got burnt. Maybe you just didn't know what your gift was. Maybe uh, the events of the last two or three years, you, you used to be involved, but you walked over to the sidelines and you're sitting there and God is beckoning you. Hey, get back in the game because I've given you something specific and unique that, is, that, that only you can do. And I want you to do it for the kingdom of God. And spiritual gifts, that's what they are. Spiritual gifts could be something, I don't even know, like, you know, we say, well, what are you naturally good at? Well, if you're naturally good at it, that's because God gave it to you. And I think there's those gifts, like some of us just came out of the womb being able to sing or being able to uh, you know, play a sport or being able to play an instrument, whatever it is. Others of us, I do believe, um, didn't get a gift naturally. It's supernatural. And by the way, uh, that's how I feel about public speaking. And for those of you that might, like for those of you that haven't heard my story, I grew up a really shy kid, hated speaking in public. I got C's and D's in all my like high school speech classes. And when I started to feel called by God to go into ministry, I primarily said no, because I didn't want to do what I'm doing right now. Like I didn't want to do this. And I thought oh, there's no way I could go into ministry and uh, like not like public speaking. And it, I remember this very specific thing. I was 19 years old. I was in my dorm room, freshman year of Bible college, where I feel, I really felt like I sort of like, um, tentatively walked up to the you know, desk. It's kind of like whenever you go and you uh, go bowling and somebody checks out shoes to you. It was as if God checked out the gift of speaking to me. 
And I kind of tentatively took it. And here, here's why I say that. God tangibly gave it to me. I believe he'll take it back. He could take it back. I believe that God gave it to me for a specific time. I, in fact, people come up to me all the time. They're like, hey, do you still get nervous when you preach? I'm like, every single time. I wish that I didn't, but I always do. And it's, I always know, like the more nervous I am, maybe the more urgent the message is. And oftentimes I feel like I'm just being carried along by the Holy Spirit. That God has given me a gift. It's kind of like walking a hundred pound Great Dane down the street. I'm just like being pulled along. I just want, simply want to say to you, what gift has God checked out to give to you? Eventually you're going to hand it back to them and he's going to say, how did you use it? How did you use it? The last thing I just want to point out, characteristic number eight, exiles never give up. He says in verse 12, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad. For these trials will make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. So, if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. Man, you hold on to that last sentence like a life preserver. In this crazy, crazy world, he will never fail you. I remember reading a few years ago about a, a doctor, a hand doctor, by the name of Paul Brandt. And uh, he goes and visits this leper colony in India. And uh, he just kind of went to, to observe. But when they found out that he was a doctor, they were really excited to have him there. And so they insisted that he stand up and address the room full of lepers that were in the room. And so he stood up, not really having any idea what to say. But Dr. Brand is a hand surgeon. And so he just couldn't help but notice the lepers' hands. Many of them were kind of drawn into a deformed claw. Some of them were missing fingers. Some of them were just stumps. Most of them were kind of hiding their hands. They were sitting on their hands, trying to find a way to kind of keep them out of sight because they were embarrassed by the way that they looked. And Dr. Brand looked out at this group of lepers, and here's what he said. He goes, you know, I'm a hand surgeon, so I always notice people's hands. A palm reader says that he can tell you your future by looking at your hands. I can tell you something about a person's past by looking at their hands, whether they're calloused or scarred. I can tell what kind of work you do by looking at your hands. I, I love hands. And at this point, you could see the lepers in the room were growing even more self-conscious because he was actually pointing out that thing they were trying to hide. But then he pivots and says, uh, I wanna talk to you about the hands of Jesus. He says, I would have loved to have met Jesus and just been able to shake his hands and feel them in mine. However, knowing the kind of person that he is, I think I know something about the hands of Jesus. And then he goes on to describe Jesus' hands as, as a baby, his tiny fingers in the manger holding onto the finger of his earthly dad, Joseph. And that awkward hands of a little boy, maybe trying to hold a stylus and form the letters of an alphabet. The hands of Jesus as a young man when he was a carpenter, strong and worn and bruised, working with the wood. And then he talked about the hands of Jesus, the physician, you know, sensitive and compassionate, powerful hands touching people who were blind and helping them to be able to see. People with withered hands, making them whole again, blessing little children. But then there are the crucified hands of Jesus. 
He said, think about that for a minute. It hurts me to think about Jesus' hands being crucified because it's almost impossible to drive a nail through a hand without paralyzing it. And Jesus' hands became paralyzed and clawed when he died for you and me on a cross. One observer said that the atmosphere in that leper colony immediately changed when he said that because for the first time ever, somebody was telling them that Jesus had become a leper, so to speak. Nobody ever told them that Jesus became paralyzed when he was nailed to a cross. They never stated it that way before. It was a kind of a revolutionary thought that Jesus had clawed hands like me. And Dr. Pran goes on and he says, the most fascinating thing to me is Jesus' resurrected hands. Usually we think about the resurrected body as being completely whole and perfect. But when Jesus rose from the dead and returned to show his disciples, he said to them, come see my hands. And he specifically said this to Thomas, who had his doubts, put your finger in my hand. And why would Jesus carry with him the scars in his hands for all of eternity when he could have made them completely whole again? Like, why would he do that? Why wouldn't his hands be completely regenerated and restored? And Dr. Brand suggests, could it be that he wanted to have as a visual reminder that he knows what it feels like to suffer? that he's identifying with us. And the surgery of life always hurts, but it helps me to know that the surgeon himself, the wounded surgeon, has felt every stab of pain and sorrow that we have in this life as well as Hebrews chapter four puts it. Dr. Brand finishes that whole talk and they said something amazing happened. The people leading the worship kind of came out and all of these lepers stood up in this room and their clawed, deformed hands, they started raising them towards Jesus in worship, surrendering themselves to him. He said it was one of the most beautiful pictures ever. Now, you may not have a literally deformed hand, but my guess is you've got some scars. My guess is you've got a wounded heart. And right now, just in these remaining few moments of our time, whatever it is you might be going through, would we be able just to stand before God as we are and ask the great physician to bring some healing to our lives? Maybe we veered off track over the last few years. Maybe we've taken our eyes off of him. Maybe our focus hasn't been where it needs to be. Maybe we've gotten off message. And maybe today we just come before our suffering savior and lay our suffering before him and ask him to meet us right in the middle there and to give us strength to endure transformation. The world is watching. This is our greatest opportunity to represent our Father. Lord God, we come to you today and life is not easy and I suspect it never fully will be on this side of eternity. And so today, could we find the, the courage to, to lean in and to begin to incorporate what Peter lays out these amazing verses, just these eight qualities, these eight characteristics of how exiles make a difference in this world. It's not easy, but God, I just pray that you give us the faith to do it. The other ways aren't working. So God, help us to stay on message. Help us to stay on mission. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Our Lord and Savior, who was willing to go through suffering himself, was willing to have his hands deformed so that we might be made whole in your sight. So God, today in these moments together, 
whatever it is that's weighing us down, could we just lay it at your feet in worship as a response to the teaching that we've just heard? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.